Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Certified Forgotten. It's been a couple of weeks since we put out an episode because life uh, uh, gets in the way sometimes. So I want to appreciate say that we appreciate all y'all for you know using this as an opportunity to catch up on some of our backlog. If you have been uh, a member or an attendee of this year's North Bend Film Festival, you got a little bonus Certified Forgotten episode, and I hope you enjoyed that. But we're back. We're here to talk about, as we always do, the best Genre films with five-ish or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, but I am joined, as I am every time we record this goddamn show, by my buddy, my partner in crime, Matt Donato. How are you doing, friend? I am doing better than I have been doing. Again, I thank all the listeners for being so patient with me as I've been moving <laughs> on a whim. Uh, and I moved in with our guest, who I will announce very shortly. But... All the furniture's put together. I never want to put to furniture together again. And mm. we're we're feeling a little better at this point. So it looks like I'm living in an apartment now and not a collection of boxes. So we're, we're doing good. We're doing good. I've seen the photos. There's like, there's a color theme. There are like, there's a palette that you two are adhering to. It feels, it feels unified, perhaps in a way that your old apartment never really did. Yeah, no. And we, I have central air. So that <laughs> that alone, I'm not sweating buckets now every time it goes above 70 degrees. So that's nice when I can podcast without flop sweats. Yeah, when you give up those window boxes, whether it's New York, L.A., wherever, like you can't go back. Once you go to central air, there's no going back. You will make decisions in your life to never have to go back to window boxes. I had central air in Brooklyn. I actually had it in Brooklyn and I came to L.A. and I was like, I don't need it. <laughs> yeah, but you had to figure all of that out in like a week. So you did the yeah, best was you like, could with what you had. No, like three weeks. For the record, Matt knew that he was moving several months in advance. He just elected to do everything in the last three weeks. It's where I work best. Hey, that sounds like our guest. Hi. <laughs> With us again, I'll just jump into it as I usually do a little intro, but you heard this guest voice already. She has been around for the Patchwork episode. We had a lot of fun talking about Patchwork, and I think we're going to have a lot of fun talking about this movie as well with our guest because it is another horror comedy. It is another horror comedy that I and my guest adore. It is the entertainment editor for What to Watch, runner of the Pickety Witch newsletter. Amelia, welcome back. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me, Matt. So, Amelia, last time we were here, we talked about kind of your horror, you know, coming of age, the types of films and stuff that you first gravitated towards and how that got you to where you are today. Uh, we're not going to retread that ground. I would encourage everybody to go back and listen to the Patchwork episode. You can kind of get like the the origin stories of Amelia there. But I kind of want to talk today a little bit more about kind of the industry component of this, right? Like as somebody who works in the entertainment industry, as somebody who is an editor and manages other writers, you know, let's start by having a conversation kind of like everybody who's listened to the show, you know, we've had people who have listened to the show be like, you know, we, I'd really been meaning to write something. And so we pitched Certified Forgotten as one of the first places because they were like, oh, this is a great opportunity for me to start writing. So I want to give you a little bit of a platform and dispense wisdom uh, dispense maybe some corrections, dispense just some good general ideas for people that are interested in writing about horror and other types of film. From an editor's mind point, you know, what are, what is advice you give new writers? What are things you tell people when they're starting out? Um, first, uh, every single editor wants you to pitch them differently, which I realize isn't very helpful, but mm. going in for a unified approach uh, usually doesn't work best. Uh, what I would note is that when you pitch, make sure it's an actual pitch and you're not just showing up in somebody's inbox with, I really like this movie. Here's the synopsis of this movie. Thank you and bye. 
Or if you're cold pitching somebody, you know, make sure you're showing up with clips. If you don't have clips, make sure you're making that clear. Because if you come to me and I either don't see any clips or there's no note that you are a newer writer, I'm just going to file your email. Like, I don't have time to respond to 30 different emails a day from people who really want to write, but they really don't want to put in the work because this is a hard industry to break into. And there is gatekeeping. That's a problem um, in a huge way. The problem is, is that gatekeeping and job requirements are two very different things. And that's something that newer writers sometimes struggle with because we do say, hey, listen, anybody can write about film. And that's true. Anybody can write about film. But if you want to write about film, you have to be willing to put in the work. And so many people hear the, well, anybody can write about film, but I didn't realize that this is going to be a job. Like the entertainment industry is work. It's a job. Mm -hmm. And if you're not willing to do that job, then you don't get to be here. I'm wondering, because you talk about the writing samples, I'm, I'm curious what uh, you and your editor capacity considers a good writing sample these days, you know, not in terms of just publications or outlets, but there's a lot of people where they're only, the only, you know, film criticism they've written might be their letterbox. They write really good, really long reviews on their letterbox profile, or they might have a medium p- uh, page or something that they run just for themselves. As you're considering, as you're vetting a new voice, you know, are you looking for somebody that's been edited? Or are you just looking, even if they have only written it for themselves, are you looking for something that shows their talent, shows the perspective they have to offer on a movie? Yeah. So honestly, from my side, I kind of prefer the unedited version just because like I've had people come to me with like the glossiest, shiniest writing samples. And then mm-hmm. I get their copy and I'm like, oh my God, you just had a great editor. This is rough, 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 rough stuff. So there's nothing to hide behind when you're just blogging. Um, and I I like that voice. I think someone's personal voice is what adds value in an industry that is flooded with voices right now. Like, I like that everybody comes in with their own opinion, but I also want your voice to add to that. Like, I'm not trying to erase that when I bring people onto the site. Yeah, I want to, um, when you're bringing people onto the site too, you know, I another concern or another thing that, that I sometimes see new writers talking about is that interpersonal component, the people you know, the network or the community you have already. And I know, I think of what to watch is, is a site that has a really good mix of people that are sort of like established knowns, part of a community of writers that know each other and respect each other's work. But I also see a lot of fresh voices that you bring to the site, people that maybe don't have like, you know, five years of writing experience, 10 years of writing experience. So maybe maybe there's two questions kind of baked into that. What should it look like? How should we evaluate kind of those interpersonal connections? And how does that sort of practically shake out? Should If you're a new writer, do you feel like, oh my gosh, if I don't, if I haven't gone to a festival, if I haven't spent time with folks, I'm, you know, I'm not going to have a shot. Is there a bit of fear? Is that fear justified of, I need to get to know the people before I'm actually going to get picked up at some of these outlets? I think there can be. So when I first started at What to Watch, it was very difficult because coming into an editor role, like my, my personal like manifesto has always been like, when you go through the door, you have to hold the door open for other people. And in the very beginning, 
that was hard, not because of my bosses or because of my outlet, but because there are certain numbers that you're expected to turn around. And if somebody like say somebody wanted to come in and be a brand new critic and offer these new things, like if you're not Rotten Tomatoes approved, it's kind of difficult in those early stages. Now I've been there a year. I've racked up enough Rotten Tomatoes certified critics that I am now able to bring in other people who are trying to get enough reviews to be able to get Rotten Tomatoes certified. So like it's it's sort of like the revolving door of you can't get a job without experience, but you can't get experience without a job. And that's mm. very frustrating. So it would be one thing if we were big enough to be an outlet that was approved, um, which we're not quite there yet, but we're working towards. Um, but, you know, as the from the perspective of somebody who isn't approved as an outlet, like I feel once you get to that point as an outlet, it is your responsibility to be reaching out to those people who do have a good voice, who just haven't had the opportunity because there are hundreds of them. Like for everyone not willing to put in the work who just gets mad that, well, nobody's letting me write because I don't want to do anything. There's somebody else banging on doors, providing what they can and saying like, listen, I want to write about this, but I don't have the experience that you need quite yet. So in those instances, what I would do is I would bring them in to write editorial features about mm those films because no that's not criticism and that's not what you want to do but it is getting you a byline and it is starting to push you through in a way that is better than just nope sorry you're not certified I can't really take a chance on you yeah and I think the big thing that keeps coming up is you know we're talking about this as an industry and there's a lot of thought and talk online and maybe in the comparison game and things of that nature of writers and they romanticize criticism and writing as this art. And it is. Writing criticism is very much art. But it's art that lives within an industry as well. And I think a lot of people have time parsing out, or sorry, they have trouble parsing out the idea that criticism also has to exist in an industry. And they both have to go hand in hand. And you have to adhere to both sides of that. You can have the creative. You can have all these things that you want and love about writing and criticism, the stuff that I love, and that's why I do it. But you also have to adhere to the business aspects of things. That drives so much of what we do. And if you're allowed, sorry, if you allow yourself to actually understand this as an industry and not just as something that you're passionate about, I think that unlocks so much. I think that's what unlocks this key to finding out how to write what people and editors want first you have to unfortunately do some of the articles you don't want to do, whether they're listicles or things of that nature. But if you play the game and if you do it correctly and show writers or sorry, show editors, the fact that like, here's my editorials, like Amelia just said, here are these things that I can do for you. That is how you get those shots up and it's work. It's building. And to echo Amelia again, it takes a goddamn long time and a lot of work to really build those relationships. But you have to be willing to do that because if you're not, if you're just that person that thinks that you're, you know, God's gift to criticism and you should just be writing everywhere and why aren't I, that's the problem. I think a lot of people ask, why don't I have or why don't I get what somebody else does instead of asking how hard did that person work to get that? And I know, unfortunately, the answer isn't always what you want to hear. And there are shining examples of unfortunate scenarios where that access is given. 
but there are still so many examples of people who work their ass off to get what they've gotten. And that's the questions we have to be asking. Like, how did that person get to there? What was their path? And like, how do I work that hard to do it? Yeah. And it, I should add a little bit of context here for people who are listening and are like, oh, you guys usually talk about the writing process, but you're kind of getting into the weeds today. Um, you know, there, there's a couple of things that have happened recently that I think make this a very kind of top of mind conversation for the industry. One is that a site that we all love, a managing editor that we all consider a friend, is going through a really big upscaling process, which is kind of, you know, allowing them to expand and add a lot of writers in our community, but it's also making the issue of like, how do you balance the the work and the you know art of film criticism in a big way? I think that's that because of that, that's something that a lot of people that we know are kind of going through in a conversation they're having. And I also want to note that there was an, an essay, an editorial that was written uh, about two weeks ago by uh, Patricia Hernandez, who's the new editor-in-chief of Kotaku, who wrote basically her her credo, her uh, her mission statement when she came on board or took over at Kotaku, which is that I want to burn everything down. If you haven't seen that, I'll make sure we link that into the show post. It's a really interesting article that sort of talks about, it, of course, that's talking about gaming journalism, but it addresses a lot of the same concerns and a lot of the same issues that film criticism is having as an industry. And so, yeah, I mean, we're always low key. All of us in this industry are always sort of like, oh, what's going on? Like, what's the state of the industry? What's the health of the industry? How is, you know, what is the balance of new writers, old writers, et cetera, et cetera? And I think now it's just there's a couple of things happening that make this a good time to kind of have these conversations, which is why it's great. Like Donato and I do edit at Certified Forgotten. If you've worked with us, you know that we provide feedback and material and things like that. But we have editors that we respect, people that we've worked with throughout our career. Amelia, we've both written for you in various capacities and various stages. And so, you know, as somebody who we entrust with our work, it's really great to be able to have you talk about what that means as an editor and, and how you relate to the writers that are kind of pitching you cold or the more experienced writers that are maybe pitching you for the first time. Yeah. I just, I want to circle back to what you just said, because I have very strong opinions about it. <laughs> um, me, strong opinions, never. Um, as like, as somebody who got her start at Birth Movies Death, which was very much the, we're never doing listicles, we're never doing any of those SEO traps, anything like that. Like, I feel like something that the general public needs to know is that birth movies deaths function was to not make like it wasn't to make money mm -hmm. we didn't know what our metrics were we didn't know how many clicks we got that was not a thing that happened it was a thing that tim wanted to just write about journalism or to write about film i'm sorry um that was the goal of the site that was it it wasn't bringing revenue it was later on in life um, but it, you know, obviously the situation that happened happened and Scott and Evan put their foot down in the way that they should have. And that worked out for the Fango side and didn't necessarily work out for the birth movies death side, but I'm endlessly proud of everybody there. Um, but all the same birth movies death was not created to make money. So yes, sites like that are amazing. We want places that are doing these things, but the site that you're roasting for doing this SEO content is also turning out that incredible journalism. They are just turning out the SEO content to be able to fund that incredible journalism. So when you look at a site that used to be independently owned and is no longer independently owned and start raking them across the coals for putting out content that will keep the lights on. 
you are contributing to the death of film and entertainment journalism. You are adding to that. And I know that that sounds harsh and mean and bullying. And what about the art of it all? The art of it all hasn't gone away, but the art of it all has to be paid by the business side of it. And if you don't like the way that works, maybe you should start clicking on the things that you like instead of endlessly sharing the things that you don't like, instead of roasting the SEO pieces, instead of quote tweeting the piece with the headline that you think is obnoxious. Like, yeah, we all think it's obnoxious. We're not sharing it because we don't want it to get clicks. If you want this industry to continue to survive, then you need to do your part and click into and share and interact with the art that you do think is good rather than kicking and screaming about what you think is bad from the business side of it, because this is a business, whether you like it or not. Yeah. And I think the important thing to think about SEO pieces as well, as that has evolved over time, the SEO piece, when it first came about and it first became a thing to drive traffic and we all knew why they were being written, they were pretty much just click this, look at our list. We're going to get a bunch of hits. And this is in the days where I had to write a listicle with 10 different entries and every one of those entries is on a different page. So we hadn't even gotten to the point yet where sites finally said, all right, we're not going to milk this whole page click thing. Everyone hates it, yada, yada, yada. So this is like in those early days. And sure, that SEO content was exactly what it had to be upfront, things of that nature. Did I love writing it? No. Did I try to find ways to at least make it engaging and interesting? I think that boils down to the writer in a sense where we can make fun of the easy hit pieces that are these SEO titles or these SEO click titles. But in the same respect as the writer, you can take that challenge on to write an SEO piece that doesn't look like an SEO piece. I think that's the biggest evolution of these SEO pieces that has come with years and years of writers having to do them. When I look at an SEO title now that is in any keyword search and it becomes my new article I have to write. My entire motivation is to write an article that you are going to read, enjoy, and it's not going to look like any other SEO article with that keyword search out there. There are ways that you can become a writer who does creative things with these SEO keywords. Like Mm -hmm. we do it on Certified Forgotten, not to like promote us, but there's a few pieces that are quote unquote SEO pieces for us. And they don't look anything like any other SEO piece I've seen. I mean, Mary Beth's piece on Hell House LLC and using that found footage, uh, basically vision and the Hell House itself and turning it into this like really awesome piece about parasites and how that is a parasitic entity. And that criticism doesn't exist outside of that article. But guess what? That was an SEO piece. That was straight up to capitalize on the Hell House LLC keyword. And number one- Avedon Hotel, baby. Exactly. Avedon Hotel keyword search. Number one, it is. It keeps climbing up on the Google rankings. Number two, it doesn't read like a listicle or anything else out there. So the thing that I keep saying is SEO pieces are not the death of film criticism. Bad SEO pieces are. So instead of maybe complaining about what you think SEO pieces are to, to and what it's doing to what our industry is, why don't you be the change that actually turns the SEO stigma into something that is valuable, just like VOD stigma has been destigmatized over the years because we finally re- realized that VOD is a good platform and there's a way for all these tinier movies to actually find an audience. Well, SEO is a great way for a writer to come in and guess what? If you're some big popular writer who doesn't want to do these things and you're above them, if you're the younger writer that's looking for your shot, take that SEO piece, take that keyword and be like, I'm going to give you something that you never would have seen. I think the you 
portion of the conversation needs to be had as well. Because when you say you in the context of the reader, like the you is not your Twitter audience. The you is not your Facebook audience. The you is not your audience as a writer. The you is Google. And I know that that sucks. And I know that that's gross. But that headline that you're roasting, it got me 10,000 clicks today. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, that's dumb. That's awful. We don't like it either. (laughs) None of us are thrilled about it. But in the space where you can make them more interesting, yes, we want to appeal to you. But right now, you is an algorithm. And we are also trying to make you the human (laughs) who is complaining about this on Twitter also be engaged. But because you're not clicking into the things that you like, you are fundamentally killing that while the algorithm is keeping these things that you hate alive. It's the Emily in Paris thing all over again. How is this thing so popular? Why is everyone talking about it? Well, because everyone is talking about it. How are we getting more of it? Well, because you all hate watched it. It, it, This is the the microcosm of a much larger problem. And it's the same thing on Twitter when people all the time are like, like, why isn't this place more positive? Why isn't this like a happier place? Why is everyone always like shitposting the whole time? Well, guess what? Because that's all people want. Because those shitposts and those negative posts, the quote tweets Amelia was saying before on headlines, things of that nature... That's what gets spread around. If we can start moving away from that, then things might change. But when the hell is that going to happen anytime soon? Yeah. And I think the business model too, I mean, I like to think of it as the bookstore model, you know, really like you want an indie bookstore that is going to cater to your particular interest. There's a lot of like a diverse authorship that has a lot of really good indie stuff other places might carry. And that's great. And you should expect that if you have a good, friendly, local neighborhood bookstore and you can find that. But that doesn't mean they're not going to carry copies of Ready Player One or Fifty Shades of Grey or whatever you think of as lowbrow or or uncultured fiction, because that's the stuff that people that walk off the street are going to buy. Those copies of Ready Player One are going to be what allows them to be able to carry copies of a smaller indie writer or a new fantasy series or something that's a little less there. So. You know, I I think of that and to bounce off what you're saying too, Amelia, like those are 10,000 clicks. We've designed the pieces to kind of navigate the system that Google's created for us, but those are 10,000 real people, like 10,000 real people probably who aren't as, don't spend all of their time thinking about film, absorbing film, watching movies. You're reaching people. You're kind of an opportunity to educate and entertain at the same time, people who might not otherwise seek out film criticism. And my wife who works in publishing you know, one of the questions that she always says is really hard when she meets people is, you know, they find out that she works in publishing, that she's been a production editor and is a freelance copy editor and copywriter or copy editor. They always say like, oh, well, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say what I'm reading because it's like, you know, I'm, I'm reading something like, I don't know, like, a, you know, vampire porn or something. Right. And mm-hmm. like her attitude is like, you're reading. That's fucking amazing. Like, I don't care what you're reading as long as you're reading. And I think that that that's a mindset we need to remember a little bit in film criticism, too, is like, you know, that listicle that piece or something that that is written specifically to appeal to google's audience and not your personal audience you know maybe yes it's 10 movies the 10 best you know foreign films on netflix or something like that but you have an opportunity to get somebody who wouldn't watch one of those movies to watch one of those movies and i'm going to guarantee you you might not get the immediate feedback but you're making the community of film goers a little bit smarter and a little bit healthier by encouraging people who don't engage in that discourse to see something of value as opposed to kind of 
either hitting the confirmation bias or failing the confirmation bias of somebody who's already a writer, already a cinephile, already has 400 movies logged a year on Letterboxd. Exactly. And I think the perfect, like, quote unquote, lowbrow example of this as like the the real people side of it are doing this like somebody quote tweeted an article the other day and they were mad that it was asking if is blank that is clearly not on netflix on netflix like that's the headline and they're Mm -hmm. like well film criticism or film journalism is alive and well i'm like okay i know that you're mad about that and i understand why because i definitely was uh hesitant when i first started writing about it Um, but also we write those stories because human beings are Googling that question. Is Loki on Netflix is one of my most popular articles this month because people are Googling endlessly is Loki on Netflix. And I get that that doesn't appeal to you, but is Loki on Netflix is paying for all of the very thoughtful and constructive and intelligent think pieces that my very smart and capable writers are writing about the series. So yes, is Loki on Netflix is a stupid question, but that stupid question is paying for that smart analysis. How to watch Psycho Gorman. Yeah. I I mean, how to watch Psycho Gorman is a legitimate question, but is Loki on Netflix? Yeah. Is Loki on Netflix? Is 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 the boys on Netflix or is the boys on Disney Plus? Like, yes, those articles are dumb, but people are looking for it. And that 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 silly headline, which is exactly what these people are asking, is paying for the smart journalism that you want. I know you don't like that your artsy thing has now become a business, but if you want the artsy thing to survive, you have to understand that the industry is a business. And I'm not going to lie. Like we can talk about the, for me personally, I can talk about SEO as sort of like the business side of things, but you know, I'm an artist, et cetera, et cetera. But like I Google that shit all the time. Like I'm constantly going through like Collider's list of like everything we know about X or slash films, everything we know about X, because there are movies that are coming out that I'm like, Oh, I totally forgot that this movie existed. Now I need to kind of, I want to read up and learn a little bit more. So like Antlers, for example, which has been coming to theaters this fall since 2014 or some fucking crazy number like that. Like I will occasionally go read. I think Collider has one. A few other sites have one. They're like what we know about Antlers. I'll read those because I don't remember the delays. I don't remember the production backups. I don't remember whether or not it got pushed back or or sold or shelved coming out of COVID. So like, even if you're somebody who is in this world and spends a lot of time reading this stuff and is supposed to know it, there's, there's a place for that shit because I use it regularly to help me remember those sort of like fringe movies, the ones that go in and out of my mind or come up in conversation once every couple of months, that's useful to me too. And so the writer that went through and sort of like aggregated all that information and pulled down like variety and Hollywood reporter articles to be able to bring you sort of a synthesis of here's why you can't see this movie yet. That I respect that work. I like it. Yeah. And I think the last thing too, for me is why do we want our friends to suffer? Because I think we're a tight knit community and industry. If we're going to call that, we all have friends who write for many sites and work for these, you know, larger sites. And the idea around every time an independent site gets bought, purchased and becomes the bad guy is like, oh, it's a sellout. It's a sellout move. They're just going to become corporate and then it's going to suck again. The product's gone. But there are so many things that come along with being purchased 
that include benefits that include better pay for people who've been working their ass off to like actually have this be their life versus just a side hustle. Do you know how much work goes into running an independent like website of that scale? Like, can you imagine trying to run slash film yourself, not having a corporate backing at all and just being stuck there not stuck. I don't want to say anyone there is stuck, obviously, but being stuck in this independent mindset where it is so much more stress and not knowing what is going to happen the next day to do all the things that Slash Film has accomplished. So like, I think it's so amazing. Everything that any, any independent site, anyone that functions on that level is fucking phenomenal. It, it for us just to run our six fucking articles a month, yeah. it takes so much out of us because yep. we are independent and we are doing this on the side. And a lot of your independent sites are also just doing it on the side. So what comes along with these quote unquote sellouts and buyouts is people that can actually breathe for a second and actually be rewarded monetarily and financially. And I know no one wants to hear that, but like that is a big thing to have. That is a big weight to be lifted. And sure, you might be part of a corporate entity, but like, why do we want to see these indie sites still struggle on that level? I, I don't understand the whole ragging on someone because they're part of a purchase. It's it's something that I hate about. And again, maybe that's my business side. Maybe that's my day job side coming out of me mm -hmm. where, uh, guess what? I would not be doing any of this if I didn't have my day job. And I'm also at the point now where I would never accept a staff position anywhere because my day job treats me very well. And it's yeah. like, it gives me everything I need to financially survive and do this job to the best of my abilities. But at night, would I give everything for that to, to change? I would. But I don't want to see anyone who's actually in the industry staffed up struggling like they were. And so for them to not to be struggling anymore, like I, I'm just so pro the fact of it's not selling out. It's just er getting what you're earned. Why don't you want your friends to eat? Like it's yeah. literally that baseline. Yeah. And I know that that sounds mean, but sometimes I'm a mean person and you bullying these people who are just trying to eat wild again, maintaining the journalism that was important to them, like, that's shitty. I'm sorry that you're afraid that independent journalism is dying. Like, we all love independent journalism. But we also want this business to be a viable business. We want it to be a place where people do feel like they can make a career. Like, if somebody came up to me, and was like, I want to be a full-time writer. I'd be like, don't. Yep. I, I love my job. I love my life. Um... But also, don't. It is not a smart move. It is, it's, it's rough out there, kids. And it's because we're in this weird in-between where people want to eat and their friends, for some reason, don't want them to eat. You can always start a Substack. That's always, <laughs> that's always an option available to you. Well, um, I knew I knew that if I asked questions about film criticism, Amelia would share some insight and also have some strong feelings. So consider that consider that that's going to be probably we probably won't do something like that for a while because I feel like that it kind of encompasses everything we could say about the state of the union as far as film criticism goes. Uh, Donato and I will be at some point making bumper stickers that says support independent film criticism, but has the independent crossed out, so it just says support film criticism. I think we could make a lot of money off of that. But we just had a really high-minded, super intellectual, thoughtful, you know, experienced conversation, passionate conversation about film criticism. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Troma's Mutant Blast. We'll be right back. <laughs> 
Hey everyone, Matthew Monocle here. So if you are enjoying today's guest and hearing what Amelia has to say about the state of film criticism, we cannot recommend enough that you go check out Pickety Witch. The Pickety Witch is her newsletter. It sits at the intersection between pop culture and social change. And in the newsletter, she talks about how with everything wrong in the world, you can sometimes have trouble knowing where to start, where you can find a voice and make a difference and help those in need. So if you like your pop culture with just a dash of activism, visit the Pickety Witch at newsletter.picketywitch.com. That's P-I-C-K-E-T-Y witch.com. Support Amelia and, you know, get a little flavor of what's going on in the world in addition to some of the good trending pop culture stuff you know and love. And with that, we're back in the episode. Welcome back. So, fuck all that film criticism talk. I know why you're really here today. And you are really here to listen to us talk about Mutant Blast. So, Mutant Blast is a 2018 trauma film. It was written and directed by Fernando Aie. It is a Portuguese film, and it is about... I don't want to say the end of the world, maybe the end of Portugal specifically, but it is sort of opens with Terminator vibes, opens with Resident Evil vibes where there's a secret research facility and they're doing testing on human beings. One of them escapes and there is a whole revolution. There's a soldier that's there to to protect that person and be able to make sure that they can fight for the future of humanity. And then in reaction to that, the government nukes the entire country. There is also zombies that aren't zombies. Um, they're they're not zombies actually because you know they're slow moving and they're they're undead and stuff but they're not actually zombies. Once you watch the movie, that'll make a little bit more sense. And then the rest of what follows is um, it's trauma, man. Like I don't even know. There's like very few distributors are able to summarize the quality and the type of films that they produce with just the name of the company. And I think trauma is one of them. So this is a trauma film through and through. There are exploding heads. There are weird giant monsters with an ecological message. Um, It's got a bit of an environmentalist streak, but it also has a giant mouse that melts people with its lactation. It's just, there's a lot going on here. So um, I will start, as I always do, by asking our guest why. And sometimes when I ask this question, I mean, why? And in this particular instance, I think I mean, why? I mean, I knew you were going to hate this movie. (laughs) Um, So for me, uh, I do want to say that trauma typically does not work for me in any capacity. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Mutant Blast is hilarious. It it never at any point during the film does what you expect it to do. And there are some moments where that is narratively strong. And there are other moments where that's just hot nonsense and both of them work for me. Like the very beginning when she accidentally shoots the creation that you think is going to be the future of this film. Uh, that's narratively interesting. You have taken my expectations up to this point and you've gone, no, that is not what's going to occur. Um, or like in the later situation where a giant rat shows up and kills everybody with its lactation. That's hot nonsense, but it still works. <laughs> I would also go as far to say that a lot of trauma productions end up being in-house things and ends up being like kind of the same filmmakers, writers, and maybe that's Lloyd involved in directorial, and maybe that's Lloyd involved a little more. And Mutant Blast for me works better than those movies because it's always Fernando's film. It's always very much, it's written, 
directed. Uh, his cast is very local and, ca- and there are like a lot of people playing a lot of hats. So you have actors in multiple roles, whether that be on camera or under a lobster suit. But the sustaining factor to me is that you are very much getting Fernando's vision and it's always his coming through because I will admit up front again, I'll, I'll actually echo Amelia. A lot of trauma doesn't work for me and especially a lot of late trauma does not work for me. A lot of like old man yells at cloud kind of stuff. Uh, Shakespeare shitstorm is something I will never talk about again, but mutant blast never falls into any of those tropes. If anything, it does fall into more of the poultry geist night of the living dead era of trauma, things of those nature. And you definitely see the trauma effects, definitely getting a lot of knowledge from that camp. And whether that be these costumes of the lobster man, the French lobster man looks so funny and so good because it's a full costume. The rat is a giant rat costume. These things work because they're all practical and in that trauma vibe, but very much never falls into the trauma pratfalls that I have seen recently. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about how this film got made, because that's probably a good first question that anybody that watches is going to have. So in interviews, IA has talked about the fact that he met Lloyd Kaufman at a Spanish film festival. Um, and I sort of feel like Troma basically runs on people that Lloyd Kaufman meets and whether or not he has good conversations over drinks with them. I've never really saw anything that that runs counter to that. So I assume that this is the story of every Troma movie. But he met Lloyd Kaufman at a Spanish film festival. He sent him some shorts. Uh, I has said that the shorts that he sent them were actually with Spanish subtitles, that he had not translated them into English yet. And so Kaufman was watching and reacting to a Portuguese film with Spanish subtitles and still like the gore was there. The elements of broad comedy were there. He was loving them. Um, they brought IA on to work on a couple of their productions. And then he came to them with a one sentence pitch and no screenplay. He said, I want to make a zombie movie. And Kaufman said, you son of a bitch, I'm in. And that is actually the story of how Mutant Blast got made. Now, there's there are other elements to it. It took him about seven years to get the film made. It took him three years to write the script. Um, as he wrote it, it became something more than just a zombie movie. And at one point, in part because it does have sort of a, a conservationist message weirdly woven through this, the Portuguese Film Institute got involved too. So this is a co-production between Troma and the Portuguese Film Institute, which is just the wildest sentence in the entire world. But I think that it does speak to, and I'm I'm excited to talk about this movie because conceptually there's a lot of really cool things in here. So I don't want you to think I'm going to be the naysayer here, but like it speaks to the fact that this is one of those films that only exists if it goes down a certain path. And it took the exact path of this. Like it needed a little bit of everything that happened to it to happen to it in order for it to retain enough creative control, enough like we don't care as long as it comes in under budget stakes. Like all of this is only a movie that could have happened this way, I think is what I'm trying to say. I mean, I agree. Uh, So (laughs) you've got his vision specifically, uh, just to echo Matt, is is what makes this this movie work. I don't want, I almost said matter and I feel like that that might be a little bit far um, despite enjoying the conservative message that comes mm-hmm. with it. Uh it it's his specific brand of humor. It's his specific brand of these weirdly and only slightly not not a lot, but just enough to add a little bit of emotion into this film. Like the the line of that's not a 
Han and Leia kiss. That's a Luke and Leia kiss. That is so basic, but it's so good. That is such a good explainer of the scene that had just occurred. And then she walks away and it's done. So there are so many small moments in this hokey, absurd film that are so smart that take it over the edge. And then, I mean, for me, you have those moments baked in. You have the absurdity of Jean-Pierre, the French lobster, who has, because of the 10 nuclear bombs that were dropped to try and eradicate a problem, all these mutants have been created, and Jean-Pierre is one of them. And the, the environmental conversation that happens around a campfire between mutants and Jean-Pierre basically saying, you humans have been just destroying animals for years and years. You ask me if I'm intelligent and yet you're the ones that have been like slaughtering my brothers and sisters and you eat everyone that you don't think is beautiful. And yet you love dolphins. And so you're having this conversation about it, like the safety of our environment and taking care of mother nature. And then all of a sudden it turns into John Pierre's hatred for dolphins. And it ends with him screaming motherfucker over and over again as it pans out. And the camera then pans to a dolphin with a katana. And that is the perfect juxtaposition of what this movie does so well, is it has those moments where it has a real message. It has a commentary. It comes out the gate swinging. And then we're right back to the fact that, like, no, a giant French lobster in a business suit is going to fight a samurai katana-wielding dolphin. And that is Mutant Blast. And that is also your uh, your Twitter header as well. I would like forever. To my Twitter header is going to be <laughs> motherfucking John Pierre screaming motherfucking dolphins because there's nothing better than that moment in that movie. I cried laughing again just rewatching that one scene today because it is just perfect. Well, let me ask because I think look, it's not exactly if this is your first episode of Certified Forgotten. Welcome. You're really seeing the full gamut of what we cover on the show. Um, I don't think it's news to any of our old listeners that this is a Donato movie through and through. So I want to, but I want to ask that. And Amelia, I have you is more in the, the Donato camp than the not Donato camp when it comes to this kind of stuff as well. So a question for both of you in the spectrum of movies, you know, cause this has been compared pretty heavily to the early films of Peter Jackson, which it obviously owes a lot to. Um, I think IA is on record as saying that Peter Jackson is his favorite filmmaker. So you get kind of like that blend of comedy and horror that he's going for. But in that spectrum of like the Astron 16s, Jordan Downey, who did Thanksgiving and Thanksgiving 3. Astron um, 6. Sorry, Astron 6. I gave them I gave them 10 extra points. Um, Astron 6, Jordan Downey, who made the Thanksgiving movies. Like there are so many film, the entire catalog of trauma movies. You know, what allows that sort of goopy DIY, self-reflexive broad splattery comp like what makes a good one of those and what makes a bad one of those because this is an arena that a lot of people have tried to play in and a lot of people have tried to emulate a lot of people saw brain dead um or dead alive or the early peter jackson movies and were like i can do this and then they do it and it fucking sucks so what makes one of these a good movie what do you have to have in order for you to basically do a peter jackson impression but have it work i think it's it's what we just talked about. It has to have those baseline smarts that help get this absurd hilarity across the finish line. Uh, I also think that the practical there is, is, is a big driver. So for me, that's very important in any film. 
And so to see something like Mutant Blast lean into it so heavily while it, and it's to varying degrees of well done also, which I think Mm -hmm. is fun. Like that rat looks terrible. It looks bad, Mm -hmm. but like, the lobster looks comical, but otherwise looks really good. Uh, you've got this dolphin with human legs and a dolphin top that somehow works because the practical team tapered his body just right. The zombies look great. And then on the flip side, you've got like these normal people running around trying to survive in this world. So I think the varying degrees of practical and the the narrative through line that that gets it through, because I think I fall somewhere directly in between the two of you. Whereas I love horror comedies and Monogle is wrong. (laughs) But like, what, what is that terrible movie that you were literally just talking about? Deep murder. I hate that movie. I hate that movie. It's not funny. It's not good. It has one comical moment, which is when the babysitter like looks into the camera and goes, I don't think I've ever seen a kid in this house. Like that's hysterical, but there is not a single other moment in that film that works for me because it's just, it's just nonsense. And that's fine for some folks, but it doesn't work for me. But if you have that baseline level of smarts hiding in there, then I'm into it or that baseline message or that baseline heart, like something that is giving you something a little bit extra than just the hoaginess. Like Psycho Gorman is the perfect example there as well, where there is so much heart in Psycho Gorman that I'm like, every single second of this is my shit. But if you removed that heart, I I wouldn't be into it at all. I think it's the replication aspect of a lot of these filmmakers that tried to do a bad taste. Like you said, Peter Jackson, early stuff. When, when a lot of people watch a Midnighter and they walk, what they walk away from it is, that was a gory good time. And the fallacy that a lot of these future films that try to replicate that come out with is that the story isn't as important and it's more about the practical. It's more about the sleaze. It's more about these kind of aspects. And to echo what you both said, Mutant Blast has more going on under the hood than just all of that. Uh, What Fernando's doing with the screenplay, especially here, is trying to do a message in a way that you can be exploitative with. This is exploitation cinema in a way when you think about it and the way that he delivers these themes and layers them into this spaghetti-like look and practical effects uh, commitment that is always, again, committed. I think that's the biggest word now that I just said it out loud. It's the commitment to the quote-unquote gimmick of Mutant Blast that sustains. It's always going to be unapologetically itself and what that self is, is a passionate midnight film that is giving you the gore up front. It is giving you only practical. It knows that people are still going to react more. And especially like me, I, I love my practical effects. I'm going to give you so many more points if you give me the disgusting head squishes, the eye pop out costume or facial mask on a mutant Um all of these things, if I don't care how hokey they look, but if you're giving them me in a practical sense, you get so many more points. And that, that becomes the charm of the film. The charm of this film is a bunch of people wanting to make a ridiculous ass movie, putting it together in a way that should never work. And yet they're saying, fuck you, it's going to work and we're going to make it work. 
as every scene of Mutant Blast to me. And that's how it can diverge from being the zombie Terminator ripoff to the gaggle, gaggle of mutants who are animals to the government scenes to the just like keep going on and on like the romantic angle that's extinguished immediately and it's saying like fuck you again the luke leia han leia stuff we're gonna play it where this is just about the mutant blast I, like the main character pedro wakes up hung over from a night of partying is immediately in a zombie scenario and then when the bombs go off his mutation is that he has a rat puppet on his hand for the next like four or five scenes None of this should fucking work. It is insane. But again, that commitment and that commitment from a group of people who all believe in this vision and aren't just out here to be like, eh, we can copy Midnighters. We can do sleaze and gore and tits and ass like that. Sure. A bunch of other people have tried that stuff, but there's a wholesomeness to Mutant Blast because it's literally coming from the heart and it also rips its heart out at the same time. So I'm just into it all the way. I think what you said about story is also really important because obviously, yes, every film should have a story, but like comparing something like Mutant Blast to say wrestling. So I always explain to people like wrestling is meant to tell a story and that doesn't matter. It it, it doesn't change whether it's a one-off match or it's a long-term feud. What happens in that ring should tell a story to the viewer, whether it's verbal or non-verbal. And if you don't do that, you are not having a successful wrestling match, period. Mm. And that that little bit of difference, because I think I feel like I'm not a fan of exploitation cinema in basically any capacity. Um, and I think that's where, that's that's the big difference, is a lot of exploitation cinema is just there to exploit. But this is here to have a story underneath that. And that changes everything. Yeah. And I, I think about all the different movies that are like this that I've seen and kind of the, I don't know, the inconsistency in my own enjoyment of them. Right. Because one of my favorite films of the eighties, like hands down is radioactive dreams, which is the 1985 Albert Pion film, which is kind of like this. Like it's about two people that grew up on Dashiell Hammett novels in a bomb shelter that like go out into a post-apocalyptic society and it's ridiculous and it's over the top and all of those things. And I love it so, so, so much. Um, But it has all of the same on paper, all the same shortcomings and all the same strengths and weaknesses as something like this. I think of Turbo Kid, which is great, like unquestionably great. Like everybody in this podcast loves Turbo Kid because it just like, it just has a just a ton of heart like it is a movie that is just like in its core of cores about people that want to do good things and want good things to happen to other people it's just like well well well-meaning characters and it's just it's i don't know like part of me thinks that these are sort of films um you know they find their audience their midnight audiences immediately but these are also the kind of films that i think maybe I wonder how they'll be received with a little bit of distance, you know, because horror comedy is always, you know, the classics, what we think of classics, they're always so rooted in industry concerns. And that becomes part of the narrative of them. Peter Jackson made those movies because he could make those movies. And so the reason why he was able to influence an entire generation of horror filmmakers is because of financial constraints. It's because of the state of the New Zealand film industry. Like all of that becomes part of the narrative of how he got to where he is. And so when you think of like the story of something like trauma, which is still very much so unwritten, right? Like they've been doing this for decades and there's going to be a trauma post Lloyd Kaufman and nobody really knows what that looks like. 
it makes me think that something like Mutant Blast still, you know, it's it's where it's going to land in the list of horror comedies and exploitation horror and et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's still a little ball on a spinning roulette wheel that hasn't found its slot yet, right? Like it's still bouncing around and someday we're going to figure out where this movie rests with horror audiences and it could be great or it could be something that's kind of forgotten. And that makes me, that, that it just makes me think, all right, if I see this in 20 years, will I still feel this sort of like been there, done that now just because this is a mode that, you know, is still present tense and not past tense. And the bad, the bad examples haven't fallen off the radar yet. I think the been there, done that is something that mutant blast can possibly avoid because who has, who has been there and done that to this point? I mean, there have been many, many exploitation uh, cinema examples or just like insane midnighters. And to me, mutant blast feels very fresh and unique because all of these diversions it takes are even okay let's go back to the rat puppet really quickly the the baby rat that is on pedro's hand and why it's there and you're thinking oh it's just this little sight gag now because you have you know the actor pedro diaz he has to play himself in this role or sorry he's playing his character in this role but also commanding the puppet with his hand now. And he's trying to have a conversation over here, but the the rat is maybe not liking the conversation. So he's having to make the rat hate what's going on while also keeping a straight face and having the conversation as an actor. So that seems to be the gimmick of this choice. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we have a scene where the main bad guy, this Terminator times two, basically looking a lot like Citizen or uh, the Toxic Avenger, in presentation once the mask comes off he is introduced as the big bad he attacks the group that we are following and we think the fight is over because this villain has walked away and out of effing nowhere that mother rat comes and decimates everyone in her path kills everyone melts them with her lactations that are toxic and is strangling people with intestines and then she just chews the rat off pedro's hand and leaves like, that was the only reason for that, and that is such a bonkers choice, narratively, uh, visually, effects-wise. But they do it, because they sat in a room, and, you know, whoever made this, thought up this exact scene, and how they executed it, they just thought this would be funny as hell. And I don't think we're going to have people on that level to, like, put together a film that feels so cobbled because of everything it's trying to do. And yet it's stitched together so seamlessly. It's going to be hard to do another mutant blast in a way. Just for the record, that mother scene is exactly what happens in the Lost World with the mama T-Rex. And the that baby is very T-Rex. true. That is quite the connection. <laughs> that is that is exactly the same scene. <laughs> Minus, the right. <laughs> Minus the lactation. Minus the lactation. You're definitely right, though, Donato. It, it feels like a scene where they're basically like, "What is the what is the rat?" Like, what does the mother rat chew off the, the rat off his hand? It's like, oh, so we can get rid of the rat off his hand. But why does the rat grow on his hand? Oh, so the mother rat can chew it off. It's like, like there's two sides. Like, you know, it's it's not, it is a self-fulfilling prophecy of crass, ridiculous humor. And if you're not on that wavelength, you can't see me shrug, but but I'm, I'm shrugging extra for effect. They also needed the rat so the rat could get them out of the hobo situation. That's true. That's true. They did. The rat did eat his way out of somebody's throat. That was very helpful. Can I can I comment on something really quick? That really I think was something I couldn't shake the entire movie. Go. You mentioned earlier um, Pedro Diaz and the acting he's doing. Is it just me or does he have like an uncanny resemblance to Peter Sellers? Like he looks a lot like Peter Sellers, and that makes the weird tragic comedy thing that he's doing such an interesting vibe for me. 
because I mean, I did not think that immediately, but continue. No, it's just that. Like, if you look at the two of them side by side, like they look an awful lot alike. And so you have somebody like Peter, you know, the, my mind immediately was going to being there and other Peter Seller roles, you know, um, Dr. Strangelove, where like the guy who made his career at doing ridiculous, broad, absurdist humor, um, but was a gifted dramatist as well. It makes me kind of like, it added a weird subtext to all of the scenes because there was this guy that's clearly like, a good actor. He's clearly good. Like the leads are talented. These are not trauma caliber actors that you sometimes see where it's basically like somebody's cousin is now the big bad in a movie or something like talented yeah. actors. But that Peter Sellers thing, I couldn't shake the entire film. And I was like, oh, this almost feels like a commentary on top of a commentary about the nature of absurdist humor. So I don't know if that was a happy accident or what, but credit to them for getting him. I'm going to say happy accident, but now that you said it, I, I, I see it. it. It's right there. It, it, yeah. The similarities do work with it well. And I mean, to like to, to shout out the cast, you don't usually shout out a cast on a movie like Mutant Blast. Usually it's just a bunch of actors trying to do whatever they can within this insane scenario. But I do I do like a lot of the performers here and whether those are small bit parts, uh, if it's someone being killed by a gigantic rat, not to keep referencing the rat, but that's a pretty prominent scene and a lot of people die. And I never felt like there was a sense where the overacting fell out of place. It feels very within the scene. It feels very within the ridiculousness of it all. And I, I never really had a part where I felt like the cast let this film down. Um, so I, I just think that's really something to call out, too, because, you know, you you have the, the character of Maria is a great example where playing against Pedro and Maria is the the soldier type sent to eradicate the first Terminator and, you know, try to basically bring up how some kind of cleanup crew aspect to it. Uh, but her evolution with Pedro and how it starts out in the sense that this is not going to be romantic. You son of a bitch, get the hell away from me. Why are you trying to kiss me? Uh, and Pedro has that shame moment and the way they evolve together as a duo. It, it, again, it's there. There's more to the story. There's more than just, these are characters that, exist in a crazy world i very much was drawn into their dyna dynamic together and i think that's another a main reason why mutant blast can succeed in the comparative game where the other movies that we're mentioning alongside it don't because they don't have that memorability in the cast and crew or sorry like you know who, who's trying to do this that's hmm. they fall the wayside where i feel like some of the characters actually stand out here no, I, I agree. I think Maria uh, specifically is incredible. Yeah. Like, and I know big shock Amelia liked the female lead, yeah. but <laughs> she, her, her straight man to Pedro's sort of goofier side works like gangbusters. Like talking about the, the final like big fight scene when he shoots her in the tit and suddenly the fight is over because she's so mad at him. She breaks loose of this guy who has up until this point bested them at every possible turn, yanks the gun from him, starts screaming at him, tells him a baby could make that shot, covers her eyes, murders the guy that's been the big problem just because this fucking buffoon shot her in the tit instead of shooting the guy who was trying to kill her at a three foot range. Incredible. That's hysterical. And it ending with the flip off too. Like the last <laughs> oh. thing you see in that scene is her just flipping off Pedro and walking away with like the middle finger, just leaving camera like last it's put together so well. And that is the testament to the obscurity. I mean, the, what Amelia just said out loud is I didn't even realize they beat the villain that, that like that easily because I'm in the dynamic of those two and them now fighting because he just shot her in the tit. 
that yeah they do they just end the movie and finish like finish off that scene so matter-of-factly and easily in that sense but because it works in the narrative again and i i feel like we're repeating ourselves over and over but it's more the realization of how well the narrative works at least for me and amelia i know you didn't love it monocle <laughs> but like at least for me and amelia the sensation of you've wrapped up all these loose ties and you've had so much fun doing it and the cast looks like they're having a ball doing it and yet it still all makes sense in a way that other midnighters they struggle with so hard you know i I see a lot of these midnighters that do go go or heavy that do go well you're only here for the practical effects so we'll make sure those look fun for you but uh, who cares about the rest and continuity is just thrown in the wayside mutant blast thinks of so many things and whether it is that cyclical self-serving thing where it's the rat puppet and it's just trying to do it to have fun or just trying to do it because it sounded crazy on paper they still commit to it and it still works because they commit that freaking hard to it well, I want to, I want to move to our last question, but I want to, mm-hmm. before we do that, I want to make sure you guys have a chance to throw out any last lingering thoughts you had about mutant blast because Lord knows there's a lot of things to talk about. So I don't want anything to fall by the wayside. Um, I will say that, did I love this movie? No, of course I didn't fucking love this movie. Like I am me and this is what I bring to the podcast, but it is not a film it's not a film like zombie ass where I would like, I would tell somebody if they watched it, I'd be like, that's going to waste your time. I know that there are a lot of people that mutant blast is going to be a big hit for. And I love that they like it. And I think that there's enough there that I can see why they like it. Um, but this was not the film in our desperate search for more horror comedies that work for me. And we haven't unfortunately gotten the wild zero episode up and running yet. Cause I think that'll be a good counterbalance to this one. But, uh, it wasn't that movie for me, but I want to make sure you guys have a chance to talk about why you liked it. If there's anything else lingering that you want to throw out there. I'm just going to mention, I adore the addition to John Pierre's character that he's also a hopeless romantic and all the stuff thrown in where he's fighting for the environment. He's fighting for lobster rights and all these things. And he brings so much to the table that adding that one last layer where he keeps going into these dramatic monologues about how I th- I believe I forget the name of his lover, Claudia, Claudia, right. His, his, the most, the most, Claudia, the most beautiful lobster in the sea. And the way he waxes so poetic about Claudia. And then you get that animated sequence when he's just staring at the sea and like yearning to go back. And there's this animated sequence of him once again, reading this epic love poem kind of, kind of dialogue and just professing his love for Claudia one more time. I, why did it have to be there? Did it need to be there? I don't care. It's amazing. <laughs> so my question for you, Donato, is uh, Jean-Pierre YouTube makeup tutorial when? My God. <laughs> Amelia, just just go so I don't have to answer that. <laughs> Motherfucking dolphins. Motherfucking dolphins. That's my final thought. All right. So let's ask the question that we normally ask at the end of the show, but let's make it a bit more specific here because part of the, maybe part of the reason, maybe part of the reason that I got off on the wrong foot with this movie is because I had to download an app, sign up for a free month subscription, and then rent a movie on said platform as well in order to access this on the new Troma streaming platform. So I want to ask all y'all about, um, sort of baked into this is the proliferation of streaming platforms, right? Like, From a catalog standpoint, the fact that Troma has their own streaming platform now, the fact that Mutant Blast is, I don't believe it has premiered on there as a streaming specific one, but it will shortly. Um, It's upcoming for them, I think. 
do we worry that a film like Mutant Blast, even though it has a home and the perfect home for it as part of Troma's rest of the catalog, do we feel like in the age of fractured streaming services that this is a movie that is going to be poorly served by the fact that maybe somebody listens to this podcast or has it recommended by a friend and they're not going to sign up for yet another streaming service? Does this need to be accessible outside of Troma or is it great to have a dedicated streaming platform for a catalog of movies that are like, if you like this, you're guaranteed to at least like a half dozen other things in the Troma catalog. Where do you guys sit with that? I think absolutely not. I think Troma needs to be making partnerships with Shutter or maybe something like Amazon Prime. Uh, I think a dedicated Troma platform is silly uh, just because Shutter is already super niche. And so narrowing that down even further to just like trauma movies is is a silly business decision and like that's that's not even a shot towards people who enjoy trauma films or trauma as a whole like you don't have that big of a market and you are not growing your market or doing your business any favors by creating something solely for this niche of a niche of a niche of a niche to get people to watch your films. Like under no circumstance should there be just a trauma platform for its own. Yeah, but there's yeah, a lot I, of there's a lot of softcore porn on that trauma app. There is indeed. <laughs> Scrolling through, I saw all of that. I believe it. Well, so that's interesting though, because I didn't sign up for the app itself. I mean, I just went on to their Vimeo service. So you can rent the movie directly from Vimeo for $5.99. And I didn't have to sign up for their streaming service. So I went, me- so I, the, they, it looks like what they have Add a little bit of context here. You can do with the Vimeo service, but it looks like the way that they have it sort of set up for themselves is sort of like the Disney model of stuff is streaming. And then there's premium stuff that you can rent. So it's possible that what I did is, is I could have just gone to the, the site and streamed it um, directly from like trauma.com or whatever. But the, yeah. the, the kind of the, the function that I wanted to, because I was airplaying it and I wanted to have the cleanest possible version I could is I downloaded the app. I rented the movie on the Troma website. It showed up in my purchase list within the app, and then I airplayed it from there. So that's a little context on how I got it to, to work the way that I did. Okay, so yeah, if you use the online version where you don't want to go through the app and you just want to rent it directly, uh, it is Vimeo. And for me, I use my uh, Google Chromecast. So Vimeo works great when you Chromecast. So that was if that's the option you want to go, that's fine. That still doesn't change my answer to no, it is, it is a very bad decision. Uh, I agree with everything Amelia said. I don't really have to echo that much, but the reason that you're not, or why aren't you partnering and building that brand? And I think, unfortunately, the answer is that this has always been what Troma does. And, you know, they say things like Troma would, and they have their own Troma film festival and everything they do is so ingrained Troma, 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 that I think that's where they still are for a reason. I think that's why they keep trying to push themselves as this big brand. And they're trying to like, be a movement but i know you've i know they've made their fans and i know that they've made a dedicated following because trust me i gave shakespeare shitstorm a bad review and within a day there were posts online written about me and how i'm some snowflake critic blah 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 blah. so yeah troma does have its uh dedicated fan base let me don't let me get that wrong but it is not a dedicated fan base that benefits a streaming service And I think Amazon Prime is exactly where you need to be for a trauma movie and something like Mutant Blast, because Mutant Blast has only ever been on that trauma availability. It's been out for like two years or something like that. At this point, I think it was a 2019 movie. And 
it's only been available on that direct Vimeo service. And th there was never any marketing push for it because there's never any information to tell people that it's there. So unless you're a trauma fan, you don't really know Mutant Blast exists and that sucks. So I very much don't agree with the decision. I think it will remain in obscurity until it gets on the platform other elsewhere. Uh, and especially if it's going to be an exclusive for Troma's uh, streaming platform that they have that I didn't, wasn't even aware of. Yeah, we're, we're in dire times. And the only thing I'll add, because I don't have anything to add to context of what either the two of you said, is we said at the beginning of the show, you know, usually our introduction is five reviews or less. We said five-ish reviews or less because this is the rare instance, not the rare instance that Donato has reviewed a film, but the rare instance where Donato's review is the thing that pushes it to six and not five. So we sort of have our in-house rule that we'll exclude Donato as needed in order to talk about the movies that we want. Um, but all five reviews, all six reviews are positive. So this is the kind of film that I think the more, and, and there's a pretty wide range of outcomes there too. People were, you know, we're not talking about just like, you know, charlieloveshorror.com as an authorized site. There were some big sites there. There were some small sites there. So I do feel like this is the kind of movie where, you know, Honestly, that's been their business model forever anyways, like word of mouth, right? So like whether this is successful or not successful, one has to think that this is exactly the kind of success that Troma and their team want to have. Whether that puts a, a, a limit, whether this is a movie that deserves to be seen by other people, kind of immaterial. They're going to grow by word of mouth and that's what they're going to do. And that'll continue to be successful to them until the day that it isn't. So. And we should say that two of those positive reviews, one is from past guest Mr. Rob Hunter and one is from past guest uh, Terry from Gaelic Dreadful. So we have we have confirmation that we know some of the critics there. We can vouch for them. We can. And I would say that is a general rule of thumb. If Donato and Hunter agree on a movie, it's probably worth your time. So that's my that's my high praise. You guys are usually dabbling in the same waters and you don't always line up. But when you do, it's it's worth checking out. All right, so that is child death. <laughs> yeah, don't don't follow Rob Hunter into battle if uh, you don't like eye trauma or children dying. Yeah, he has on the record is giving more stars to movies of kids die. So do with that information what you will. All right, well, I want to say Amelia, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having thirty minutes of a really great conversation, and then thirty minutes of a conversation that I think. I don't know. Like, I'm not going to say that. I'm never going to revisit Mutant Blast. I immediately deleted the app after I was watching the movie. Like, within seconds of finishing the movie, I deleted the app from my phone because I was like, done. But I, I do think that there's going to be a lot of people that will find this podcast and be excited to hear people talking about it um, because it is something that, you know, it, 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 it has to be a word of mouth movie. So the fact that you brought this to us, you know, there are maybe dozens of folks that listen to the podcast and get excited about the film, but you're going to make somebody's day because of that. No, well, thanks for having me. As always, um, I'm going to go on record and say that while I totally appreciate that you will never watch this film again, I do think that uh, Psycho Gorman now needs to happen in a group, whether it is just the three of us or more. Um, but I will get you to watch Psycho Gorman, and I think I think maybe that one will have the right stuff for a horror comedy, or it won't. But Either way, I get to watch Psycho Gorman again, so I win. Sure. I suppose I need to find out once and for all if I like these hunky boys. Uh, that is our show. Let's take a moment and remind you of where you can find all the good stuff we've got going on. Um, Amelia, please talk about where people can find you. Talk about where people can subscribe for the Pickety Witch in particular, please. All right. Uh, so you can find me on Twitter at Browncoat Horror. Um, that's where... 
99.99% of my stuff is going to be posted. You can also find me on Patreon under The Pickety Witch. And you can subscribe to The Pickety Witch newsletter at newsletter.picketywitch.com. Mr. Donato, what you got for us today? As always, at Donato Bomb on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram. Uh, just more of the same coming up. A lot of writing going on. So I'll be appearing on the bloodies, on the what to watches. Uh, new, newer outcomes are that I will be taking over uh, Megan Navarro's column on Scariest Scene on Slashville. And I will be tag team that with Ariel, who has not appeared on the podcast, but is a friend of the show. So you will be. We should fix that. Yeah, I know. Oh, we, surprised. we she she will be on when she gets her movie in order. We've been talking. Okay. All right. um, Good deal. So that will happen eventually. But in any case, I am very honored uh, to take that over, take the mantle. And you'll be seeing a lot more of me writing about scary scenes in the future, in addition to everything I do. So also certified forgotten. Hey, you're here. <laughs> go, go see our Patreon. Go see our website. We're doing cool shit. We are doing cool shit. You can find my stuff at Twitter, Labsplice, L-A-B-S-B-L-I-C-E. Um, but yeah, like Donato said, go visit certifiedforgotten.com. You know, we have been blessed with another really good month of excellent writers, people that are coming in and offering us really fucking unique takes on really fucking unique horror films. So, you know, even if we go through periods where we don't deliver the podcast as much as we like, it's a rare opportunity, but we know it happened the last couple of weeks. Hopefully you have still checked out the website because we have still been publishing some really good horror journalism on the website. So yeah, be sure to go and bounce around. And if you see us talking about pieces on Twitter, click on it. Cause we're talking about the importance of that SEO shit, referral traffic is good traffic. Make it happen. And that is all Amelia. So we have you back on the show in the future to talk about another horror comedy that I probably hate. I guess we'll <laughs> see you then. <laughs> I look forward to it. <laughs> I don't. Do not <laughs> take this out. Motherfucking dolphin.